My name is T. Bui, uh, or Bui Fung T as my mother named me. I'm an author, an educator, and sometimes organizer. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? It, it feels lucky in a way um, and unlucky in some other ways. Um, it means having lived through a lot or having parents who lived through a lot more. And it means getting to um, like speak in a musical language. Um, and it means having perspective on, uh, you know, living here in the U.S. What you just how you just reframed musical. You just said a language that's musical. And and through other interviews, I've also kind of experienced that reframing from you uh, with the diacritics and the pronunciation. And I think many of us in our generation grew up very ashamed of this tonal language and it sounding very jarring, you know, compared to, you know, the romance languages and so thank you for for normalizing it and now not just normalizing, but elevating it um, because that's uh, such an important thing for confidence from, for, for Vietnamese kids. Yeah, and thank you for making this amazing like collection of all kinds of Vietnamese voices in the diaspora. You know, I'm learning stuff from following you about like fairy tales and history that I didn't know growing up. It's so nice to have it, you know, in the language that I read better because, you know, <laughs> I love Vietnamese uh, as a language, but I didn't get to grow up learning it in the same way that I learned English. So English is kind of like the, the language that I need to reclaim this heritage. Um, so it's, it's really great to have this resource. Well, shout out to my uh, social media team at Good House. Uh, they put together and they compile everything and, you know, they pass it through to me and I kind of make a little adjustments here and there. But for the most part, uh, that team is uh, is phenomenal. Um, nice. It does take a team, right? Yes, it, it really does. It really does. And they do a great job. So you um, did you come out of uh, university as a, what, what did you study? Did you want to be a teacher or did you, what were you trying no. to get into? <laughs> no, I, um, I wanted to either be a civil rights lawyer or an artist. So I, I double majored um, in political science and art. And then I switched from political science to legal studies because um, nicer people were in legal studies. And at this time, I, you know, sort of idealized um, the judicial branch of government as like, you know, the cool branch. Um, things have changed, uh, but I did get inspired by a lot of uh, history of the civil rights movement and um, wanted to you know, help make the world a better place. And so I thought I could either do that through uh, the law or through art. And uh, then I went to New York to be an artist and I had a terrible time in grad school. I almost flunked out of my MFA in sculpture. Um, and that, then that's when I, and I stopped drawing for a few years. Um, and I felt like an outsider, you know? Well, so you were getting the MFA at NYU and you got a master's in art education at NYU as well? Uh, the MFA was at Bard College in upstate New York. Got it, got and, then I was, and I was living in New York City. And, and what was that experience like teaching in New York City? Uh, was it high school? Yeah, it was high school. Um, during the training, I, I like did all the ages, you know, everything from kindergarten up through uh, high school. And um, I really liked high schoolers. I really connected with their their maturity and snarkiness, but like they're still young enough to have an impact on. I had a good time. I befriended a lot of the kids who got in trouble a lot and they would tend to come to my classroom and hang out and I would give them extra credit for things that weren't necessarily academic. Um, and that was just a way to like bring them back into the fold. Yeah. You know? So respecting them as a human being and not just like, a cog in a in an educational system um, helped a lot. What are your um, sentiments on the education system in the United States today? Um, you know, my feeling about being a teacher in public schools was like it was trying to do this really hard job um, while people were trying to burn your building down. So it's tough from all angles, you know. And then during COVID, like. 
it's it's it was impossible for teachers to do a good job because they didn't even have like continuity. Yeah. They didn't know what was going to happen the next month. And you, this is a sentiment you feel today, like teaching is you're trying to do your job in a burning building now. Like this is how you feel about it the last few years. This is how I felt about it before the pandemic. So wow. I can't even imagine. I haven't been a public school teacher during the pandemic, but, you know, hats off to them. Now, while you were teaching all these years, you probably had a seed of, you know, the art, right? You had to really go back to producing uh, art. Your, your yeah. art. Uh, can you tell me about that? Uh, I don't know if it was a struggle for you or what the journey was like uh, while you're having your day job teaching and then, you know, having this sort of urge to to produce. Like, can you talk about Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess for some people, like the urge goes away after a while. And then for me, it was like this hunger that got more and more intense um, the longer I wasn't feeding it. Um, and so for a while, I was like living vicariously through my students because I taught art. Um, and even when I wasn't given an, an, a class that was strictly art, like I got given a computer literacy class and I turned it into a movie making class. Wow. <laughs> Um, I just got them cameras and got them excited about making movies. And that was how I taught them computer skills. So I was living vicariously through the projects that I assigned to my students. Like I had my art class, um, you know, tell their immigration stories in the form of comics for a few years. Birth of, of where the best we could do uh, comes from was when, when I was still living in New York, um, I had already um, actually while I was in grad school for the the education masters, my thesis advisor, who was the, the great person I talked about, actually let me do a thesis project that wasn't really related to education. It was um, interviews with my family and sort of a literature review on like how the Vietnam War had been represented in the US, in pop culture and academia. And um, I just got to talk about representation and then try to offer an alternative to the kind of crap that had been done yeah. um and i didn't want it to just be words so i added like photographs and some drawings and some bad graphic design and the the book that i made was like actually the beginning of the best we could do and then i got a grant from fun for teachers to go to vietnam and take my mother um, and we went through all the places that we had ever lived as a family and that they had ever lived and um then I had all this material, but yeah. then I had to teach. And I was also pregnant with my son when I went. So, you know, life kind of got in the way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's partly why the best we could do took so long. So you have this book for a few years and it's it's sitting there, right? In your mind, were you thinking that you got to expand this somehow in, <laughs> and, and sharpen it up and, and refine it? Or was it just sitting there and it just collecting dust? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I mean, it was... Yeah, it was um, sitting there collecting dust, but um, I think I was sharpening my skills because I, I knew that I hadn't I hadn't done comics before and I needed to teach myself this new language that I wanted to write in. Um, so I was reading books and then, you know, teaching is a great way to learn new things because then you have to turn it around quickly and explain it to somebody else. Um, and then just the iterative process of teaching helps you refine like, okay, this is a good approach. This is not such a good approach. And like, while I was teaching the students to make their own comics, I was kind of teaching myself how I wanted to make comics. But why comics? Why teach the kids comics and not another form? I, I'm just curious, like why? Yeah. yeah why um, form? Well, you know, partly it was that I was teaching English language learners. And so uh, English was not like the best language, right? these words were not the best language for them to be using. Um, they had all this knowledge in them that that wasn't verbal and wasn't in English. Um, and, and a lot of them were like really good at drawing. Like my Korean refugee students who had like grown up in refugee camps in Thailand, they had this like memory of their, their um, camp like burned into their memories um, and they could draw it. You know, and, and, and those drawings conveyed so much more information than whatever they could write. So the combination of the two unlocked these really powerful stories and just in my opinion i think that um the best we could do the way it, the form uh the comic book form is is so much 
it's just so appropriate for the way that the narrative has unfolded. I mean, in film, it's sort of you got to set up so much crap. I mean, I'm t- talking about the financing all the way to the story, the way everything's structured. But this, um, it, while I was reading it, allowed me to really breathe. And, you know, I had it on my uh, nightstand in my, next to my bed. And it allowed me to sort of go through it for about a month. And, you know, sometimes I would just turn back to previous chapters and kind of, it. it was, it's perfect because you can really allow it to soak in um, the stories and and the vignettes to to kind of like go to bed thinking about this stuff and it just it, it, oh. it was it's very appropriate. Thank yeah. you. That makes me happy to hear that you took your time because I've heard I've heard from people that they read it in an hour or two and I'm like, great. That took me ten years, but <laughs> you know. <laughs> I have friends that read it in three days. Mm-hmm. And then I just wanted to be the contrarian because I'm like, you know, this there's no reason to to rush through a book like this. So mm-hmm. I took my time um, reading it. And um, you know, I I wanted to ask you about um, as artists, there's a, a certain inability to focus in on one thing uh, because we're so creative and and our brains are constantly having new ideas were there other competing narratives or stories that you had uh in the production line um beyond um the the story yeah 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 there always are i always have like five things i'd like to be working on um and some a lot of them are non, not nonfiction. Um, some of them are, um, but then you have to focus in order to do yes. things well. Yeah. And, and how did you focus on the best we could do? I mean, if there's like four other projects in your book. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think like have you ever seen that that diagram of like uh, I think it it's it comes from I think there's like a Japanese word like ikigai or something. Yes where you've got like the overlap of four different things and like, like including what you're good at and um, what you care about and what you can get paid for. And then there's the, the, the pedal that's like what other people need. Um, that one drives me a lot. Uh, when I think about the best we could do, I'm, I often, you know, I was going to ask you like the we refers to you and your family, or are you speaking on behalf of just your parents or, Vietnamese diaspora in general. <laughs> I'll leave that one kind of open ended. I was thinking a lot about parents and children when that um, when that title came to me. Um, it's a it's 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 a it's a title that tries to wrap up some empathy and understanding, as well as. Uh, I mean, okay, so the book is told from my point of view, but I'm listening to my parents talk about their story so there is like kind of like different there are different hats being worn and there's a there's an attempt to understand um and you know we did the best we could do is a commonly heard phrase right sometimes the best we the best someone could do wasn't good enough for you though so there's that um so it's a somewhat ambiguous title that's kind of about parents and children do you ever think about that with your son oh all the time yeah well that's the point of empathy and that's why i start this the whole book with like me crossing that threshold into parenthood because that's when i realized oh, this is this is a job i'm gonna mess up at some point if not all the time and how old is your son now he's 16 going on 17 and, and how candid and honest are you about that sort of journey about fucking things up do you <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty candid um i think i try to be a lot more transparent yeah. than than my parents were and and i also have learned to apologize pretty quickly if i make a mistake like we grew up hard our parents are like what <laughs> yeah Vietnamese, this is what yeah. my mom yeah mom and dad always used to say we don't fucking apologize for anything that's mm-hmm. what my mom and dad all we are Vietnamese parents. We do not say sorry. That's one thing we do not do. My that was in my house. Like mm-hmm. never, my mom and dad never apologized. Now it's a little bit diff- different because you know I think it's you know over the years they've. But when I was growing up, they don't. And then, so I feel like 
if they don't apologize, you just have to suck it up. And there's no closure to these little vignettes of like destruction that makes us, make, makes us a little harder and more resilient. Are we doing a disservice to our, our children? Yeah, I've, I've, I've often wondered the same thing. Like, oh man, am I taking something away from, from my son's character by being nice to him or by providing for him, right? Um, I don't know that you can manufacture uh, adversity, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not honest. Um, so at some point, I have to admit, well, you know, I'm also living this comfortable middle class life now. And, and my daily life is not full of, you know, strife. Um, so why should his be? Um, and then sometimes life will give you some adversity. And then that's when you learn how soft or hard or resilient or resourceful your kid is. And it's heartbreaking, but also it's eye-opening. And I've learned that my son is stronger than I thought he was. And also I've learned that, um, you know, when he doesn't have me, he, he takes care of himself quite well. And he's actually, he, he steps up. Um, and then as soon as I come back, he oversleeps and I have to get him up for work. And, and I think that's about the comfort of having someone there for you. Someone to take care of you lets you relax. And when you don't get to relax and you're hard and, and all of these things that we're assigning all this value to, you get stressed out and the stress hurts you in other ways, right? So I'm hoping that, you know, my son will have the stamina to live a long and healthy life if I save him from some of the stress that comes from having to be so self-reliant. So uh, I, I, I save, and it's Nowhere Land, right? The project, is that the mm -hmm. name? Okay, yeah, I, I have it uh, for a little bit later, but I'll, I'll, let's talk about it. Um, how far along are you uh, in the development uh. of it? <laughs> Hopefully this summer, after this summer, I'll be able to give you a, a more complete answer. But um, I have like tons of, of, of research and material, like interviews with people and sketches and um, kind of a, a, a sprawling outline of the whole book. Um, but I think I'm going to tear that up and start again this summer. Holy cow. Is it also <laughs> a comic? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, I guess. Uh, what well, I guess it would be a yeah. It's a big comic book, like probably almost the same length as the best we could do. In by the by the time I'm done with it, and and nonfiction. Now, when you work on another project and you're kind of doing it and shaping it like uh, the best we could do, do you think of changing the style? of it or do you kind of keep within the same parameters the, the color the feel all of uh, that yeah no it, it's good to backwards plan when you're doing something big so to be realistic about uh how much change there can be so um you know if i'm going for something with this much length and i also want it to be good writing i might put more of my eggs in that basket and fewer in like coloring and, and other new skills that i want to develop um, so I've let myself like explore like color in the children's books that I've illustrated, but the style of something this long is going to need to be more simple and probably only like one spot color plus black line work. And I'll so probably draw digitally or maybe a combination of analog and digital. Wow, the the style, the 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 movement, the the feel of the artwork uh, that has to have evolved over time, right? Oh, yeah, I had to redraw the early pages a lot because my style changed so much over the course of the 10 years working on it. Yeah, I, it feels um, it feels alive, but alive uh, in a period piece like a mm. film, right? It just it has that feel. And, and I know that some like an artist like you would could never come up with that in a year. Right. It's, it's like it, there's a true evolution of like. When did you know that you were finished with it? The, 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 the feel, the design of, of the feeling of it? Uh, when I finished it? Uh, no, I think I got up to like chapter eight out of 10 when I finally felt like, oh, I know how to draw comics. <laughs> you know, this is definitely not a work of mastery. I don't look back on it and go, wow, these are really good. I actually cringe looking at most of the pages now. Um, but it was a time capsule of where I was at during those, during those years. 
the best you could do. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> and then uh, there's the Eisner Award. Like, did oh, that left I mean, yeah, I got nominated. I didn't win it. Oh, okay. But that's, I mean, that's a big deal as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see uh, that coming? Did you, I mean. Uh, you know, when you work hard on something and, and, and you feel like you made something that hasn't been made before, yeah, you, you kind of hope for some recognition for sure. Um, and I, I learned some of this from, from a colleague of mine who was nominated the same year, John Jennings, um, who actually did win it that year for uh, his graphic novel adaptation of Octavia Butler's Kindred. Um, he was like, we better get an award, you and me both. I was like, okay, John, yeah. You know, so <laughs> I, was, I was pumped. Um, and it's, it's always nice, it's always nice to be recognized. Yeah. But it's also nice to watch other people win. So it's all good. Especially if they're friends, right? Well, especially if their work is good. Yeah, I guess if they were a jerk, you would be a little bit miffed, but it, it's fine. You know, the big thing is getting to make work. Because I mean, I'll be honest with you, it's a lot easier to be an artist than to be a public school teacher. Really? Yeah. I mean, when you make when you make money as an artist, sure. Like, it's hard to get to that point where you're you can actually make a living on this. But once you do, it's like, I mean, I call my own hours. I can say yeah. yes or no to things, you know. Uh, yeah, we don't. I don't think that we actually love kids in this country, or else we would devote more resources to them. Um, and even a, in a progressive state like California, it's, it's still like forty something. It's ranked forty something out of fifty states in terms of per pupil funding from the state, and that has to do with our tax structure. But you know. Where are the resources, and and why is it so hard to be a teacher? And why did why do we demand that they solve all of society's problems, and we still pretend that all they do is teach content, academic content? You know, um, so there, it's no wonder that there's a, a shortage of teachers right now. But why are we not funding more? What do you think it is? Why is the? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like my cynical view is like we don't love our kids enough. Um, What's the practical side of it? What do you mean? Why can't we allocate more? Is it Well, there's a lot of segregation in this country, right? It's like people love their own kids a lot, but can they love everybody's kids? You know, why why is there so much like self-imposed segregation? Why is there like white fright, white flight from urban schools? Why do the why do the black and brown kids and, and the Southeast Asian kids get left in the in the poorest, you know, roughest schools? It's because people took their resources and, and, and went to more desirable places. And then you definitely see some color lines there. But is it is do we have a chance and an opportunity to get to make it better? How can we as a society, an American society, make that better? I think it could. You know, I I in spite of talking about a lot of problems, I remain an optimist. Um, some days it's easier than others um, to be an optimist, but I am ultimately um, hopeful that, you know, it's never too late. It's never too late to, to swing things around. And part of it has to do with a belief in a common cause. I, I do believe in public education because that is that's supposed to be the place where, you know, democratically we can provide free quality education to all kids, not just some kids. Um, <clears throat> and it has to be kind of a group leap of faith, right? So you have to have like administrators that people can believe in. They have to have good teachers that will work there. And the parents also have to buy into this idea that together, you know, we can make schools that are good for kids. Going back to um, the best we could do and this idea of catharsis, um, was there catharsis after the book being in the world and was there a sense of relief from the weight of, of your family our family our collective sense of identity do you feel like it was um something that you were finished with and you could move on or is it something that continues to kind of grow and you're still very much uh still growing from it you know, I guess the question is, I'm not asked, looking for an absolute answer, but I'm looking for what your kind of overall uh, result in, in your emotions. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I could think of one 
moment of catharsis because it, it wasn't like a clear catharsis like you're onto something there um but it was the moment that I went back to Vietnam after finishing the book and I went back to research another project um, I was interested in learning more about climate change in the Mekong Delta and I went um and I had this completely different relationship with the country like I was no longer looking at everybody for pieces of my own story and I wasn't needing them to answer any kind of yearning in me because I had worked that out in the book and so I felt like I could finally uh, see this country more objectively as this really vibrant place that had a lot of struggles too, full of like 95 million people who are not me. So I felt like I was able to remove myself from, from things more and just see people for, for, for who they were and, and learn about them in, in a new way. Well, what a sense of um, a growth, right? It's, I think Vietnamese Americans of our generation, um, have, some of us have not been allowed to to reach that that feeling. You know, we carry a lot of um, unseen weight around, uh, but you did the work, and I think that you uh, deserve to to have that experience when you go back, and you know, you can separate that. Uh, the weight of, of, of all of the meaning and, you know, and, it, and that's something that's unspoken uh, un, un, you know, in our families, we don't talk about too often, but now yeah. we start, now we're starting to uh, the conversation. Yeah. 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 I, and I think maybe this is the flip side to being so tough and hard, right. And not talking about things is that we have a lot of unresolved. Uh, we have a lot of unresolved issues in us and, and we need to heal those parts in order to get this catharsis. Yeah. You you know the uh, the Mekong Delta and the um, climate change and can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so what I learned and my research is a, a two three year, years old now, but I think it's not too much has changed. Um, the the Mekong Delta is home to at the time seventeen million people, and it's like the the you know what they call the breadbasket of America. It's it's like the rice bowl of Vietnam. Like it produces you know like half the country's rice and and a lot of other things too. Um, and it's becoming less and less usable for agriculture because of one like uh, dams being built upriver in other countries, like, you know, have taken a lot of the nutrients out of the, the soil, but also the sea is rising. So that's actually irreparable damage when that happens because salt in, yeah, in, yeah salt kills everything. Um, so this is kind of horrifying because we, we, we see a lot in the news about floods and typhoons and those are, more vivid images, but like it's a lot. <laughs> Turns out it's really hard to represent the sea slowly rising because <laughs> it's not like it's going to flood everything. Yeah. It's just that it kills everything slowly. Um, and what that's going to do is cause everyone to have to migrate away. And that's a lot of people. Um, plus, like food, you know, is <laughs> food is important for our survival. Um, so I was I was pretty terrified and I went, wanted to go understand it from the point of view of the farmers and, and people who live there. And it turns out that <laughs> Vietnamese people are so resilient that they weren't talking about it as a problem in the same way that I had heard mm. about it as a problem here in the US. They were just surviving it like another thing. Like what else have they, you know, I mean, they were like, what else have you got? Like, you know, people turn like the craters that are left from American bombs into ponds and things there. So this is just like another thing that they have to adjust to. Um, so it's kind of amazing. And also uh, I haven't figured out exactly how to write about it yet. Well, the, the dams that are happening in other countries uh, that spill over into the tributaries, is that what, you know, the rivers and, and, and the water supply, uh, that's a very alarming thing that we don't hear much about. Mm -hmm. There, you know, I spoke to somebody um, last year about the activists that are in the Mekong and trying to figure out how the control of the water coming in um, 
because it's China, right? I mean, let's be frank. Uh, mm-hmm. It's China. And it's a very easy way for a country like China to control the rice basket or the rice bowl mm-hmm. of, of this country, of Vietnam, mm-hmm. right? And it's something that we, as Vietnamese Americans or Vietnamese diaspora, we are not really aware of that's happening in, I mean, a country, our motherland. And it's a big danger that's, uh, that in, in about a decade could really choke out the economy and the sustenance of, of farmers in, in that area. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot to deal with. Yeah. And I don't know if uh, enough attention is being um, spotlighted um, for that issue in, in the Mekong. I, I really want to talk more about it with anybody who um, who is involved in, in the activist uh, community for that. If I, yeah, if I, okay. we can talk more later. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll connect you with people that I meet. Yeah, that's definitely something that um, that I really wanted to address. I've, you know, when I heard about it a year ago, I was like, "Wow, this is well," because my family comes from that, right? My my dad's family. Uh, oh yeah. That area, and we still have uh, some family in that area. So there's risk of, you know, life deteriorating in in a decade or two. Yeah. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I mean, going back to the resilience, like I met. But like I was reading about how a lot of farmers who are switching from rice to uh, farming shrimp as the water is getting saltier. And then like when they want to have like um, rice and shrimp, they just like collect rainwater and they, you know, take down, they di- dilute the salinity of the water with more rainwater. It's brilliant, actually. Wow. Wow. Talk about resilience. Yeah. So I don't know. One of my one of my five ideas that I'm juggling all the time is I kind of want to try a, a a short story that's like speculative fiction, I guess, like set 50 years in the future and what I imagine an area of the Mekong might look like. You know, like everybody has left for work in the city and there's nothing left but salty water and salty women and I want to. I have this story that I'm crafting right now about two of them. God, that sounds so interesting. <laughs> you had me at salty women, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who doesn't want a story about two salty Vietnamese women? Yeah, you know there was a film a few years ago by uh, Ang Nguyen, Vamin. Uh, uh, he directed a movie called Nook. Um, I don't know if you you're aware of it. I haven't gotten to see it yet, but I've yeah. heard about it. It's sort of like the the you know climate change and the whole country's like I think flooded and it's just all water and it's uh it's a very real thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sensing this like hesitation and excitement in you about content that 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 our diaspora creates. Like I like I'm I'm gonna guess that part of why you kept the book on your on your table and read it slowly was you weren't sure if I was going to traumatize you. Right. You know, that is definitely part of, uh, yeah, <laughs> you have equation. to be cautious. Yeah. Yes, it's part of the equation. Yeah. That's why I still haven't watched the, the 10 or 20 part Ken Burns documentary on the war. Cause I don't know. I don't trust him. <laughs> I mean, I don't trust an American to make stuff for me. You know, like it might be high quality stuff, but I, I don't know if it's going to re-traumatize me without giving me anything to heal myself with. Mm, that's a, so such a good point. I also approach like all things Vietnamese with a little bit of caution because I have to, I have to shark around them a little bit. You know, we, I feel like sometimes we, not we, me, uh, <laughs> I, I want to avoid the trauma. I, I want to move away, away from the war speak and, mm-hmm. you know, projects that are involved uh, you know i i'm crafting a, a solo episode like under 10 minutes uh to just speak into the camera and push uh diff- like the mekong issue and just giving information and historical sort of um nuggets um but i and i'm very aware of staying away from traumatic uh news like i don't want to do that i want but at the same time we got to ring the alarm bells because the Mekong is going to shit if we don't. Yeah, yeah. We can't exist only in our fantasies. Yeah. 
we have so for me it's about telling the bad news but also maybe telling some tool giving some tools or resources or some good news or giving you the story of some people who are trying to do something about it and it turns out you know this, the last several years in the u.s have been like a shit show can i just say that like yeah. <laughs> they've been hard um and the best place for me to be during that time was with other people trying to do something about it it felt a lot better than just reading about the, the shit show yeah 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 we're rolling up our sleeves and doing something about it uh, mm -hmm. it's key right it's like mm -hmm. putting in action and that's how i feel about vietnam i i feel like uh you know discovering the beautiful aspects of vietnam is my way of coping with um past trauma and i, I want to move beyond it yeah yeah how do we deal with it confront it not shy away from it but also like give ourselves things that like nurture us right yeah they're not they're not dealing with it 75 70 percent of the population was born after the war after yeah after the war there there's no concept of they it's not something that they talk about it's right it's in their it's not even in their rear view mirror yeah i mean why i had to deal with it was that you know comics often tell origin stories and i was like okay yeah. well the war was kind of part of a big part of my origin story also, if we don't tell that history, then we just allow it to be told by what white male historians. Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't seem great. When do you think that we are going to, I mean, God, I hate to have like these line of demarcations, right? Like, <laughs> oh, this absolute here's, you know, where the line is, but are we moving gradually out of uh, trauma and, and, painful stories and are we moving into i think our generation is you know we i feel like we're healing in in a healthy way and we are leaving behind these uh nuggets of of, of truth and history from our perspective but we're also I, I feel like we are gradually moving on how do you feel about that i think people are all over the spectrum like i've met people who are younger than me who you know still have a lot of shame that they're having to heal themselves of, you know, the shame that you talked about early on about being ashamed of your language or um, the food your mom packed you to school or whatever, or how you look. And growing up in the eighties and nineties, like right. it was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, or being hypersexualized as a woman, yeah. like the me so horny, me love you long time. Like, yeah. yeah, it's all really painful stuff. Um, and you know, then, then, um, there's the circumstances of how we came. And then, you know, I have a lot of strong feelings about being used as a model minority or a exceptional refugee here to like, you know, stomp down other people's rights. I'm like, what's that about? So I think maybe my poli sci background, like keeps me focused on talking about politics and, and history and how we're writing it. Um, so I think it's good to attack that stuff from all angles and it's constant work. Um, a few of us healing doesn't heal the whole diaspora, unfortunately, um, but it can help. Yeah. And um, I, the goal, I think, is like uh, that narrative plenitude that Viet Thanh Nguyen um, talked about so that everybody's got something to, to, to help them with their own particular set of issues. The plenitude. Mm -hmm. I want to jump into that artist plenitude. Uh, a lot of artists that you know, in my community of artists and filmmakers and um, musicians, uh, there we all have to sort of do these side hustles, and we all have to do our teaching or jobs, or you know, we're all at it, right? We're all at the grind. And then there's there comes a point when there is like this escape velocity where you make it out out of sphere, start making money through your art. Did you see that ever coming up um, in your life? Did you kind of project that? Did you, the law of attraction, you know, did that confidence to know that if you just kept at it, you would be able to sustain as an artist? Did you have that confidence um, coming up? <clears throat> I don't know. I, I guess I had the hustle and the hard work. Um, I'm a, I'm a Capricorn sign, if that means anything, you know, I just, I just keep going. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I, I was, I feel like I was, I was born hustling, you know, like just even to get ourselves into college, right. And pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> there wasn't any help. Um, so I felt like I had to write probably my early, earliest forms of, of writing 
were so that I could get money to pay for school, a lot of essay contests and applications and whatnot. So the hustle was always there. And uh, yeah, the, the goals were there to get a thing made. And, and then you have to buy your buy time to make big things. So I guess one thing led to another. It's hard to predict how the reception is going to be for your book. So all of that was a surprise. Yeah. And I'm glad that, you know, we have that today, you know, in our, in our world, in our Vietnamese American um, history, we have it documented in this beautiful work of, of art. Thanks. Did uh, making it into like the Bill Gates top five and, being incorporated into like UCLA's curriculum. Did that change uh, your perspective or your life in any way? Those accolades? Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't get any, I didn't get any attention from Vietnamese language press until the Bill Gates thing. So yeah, that, that helped a lot. <laughs> um, Vietnamese and, and Indian uh, aunties and uncles suddenly uh, took the book more seriously. <laughs> um, and that's just a tiny dig at our at our community, um, and yeah, I mean, getting getting to talk to college age students is like one of my favorite things because I get I remember getting so many questions like from from the audience and and every other question it seemed like was uh, it seemed like every other question was how do I talk to my Vietnamese American parents or my Asian American parents about wanting to become an artist or like not wanting to study what they want me to study. Um, so I took it to mean like, how do I talk to my parents who are really different from me? So I guess um, going back to that Ikigai flower, like the usefulness of, of mm. providing a model for people um, is, is really lovely. And like at this point, Honestly, like I've gotten to to fulfill my heart's desire with my life, and I just want to spend the rest of my time here on Earth being useful and happy. If I can do the, if I can do both, I'll, that would be amazing. Yeah. How did your mom and dad and your family receive uh, the book? Um, they they received it very well, and that was because I I showed them parts of the book as I was going along rather than surprising them at the end with it all. So they were um, editors and collaborators from a very early time. Did they have any idea how big it would be? I don't think so. I mean, but also, you know, my parents are pretty Vietnamese. Like I, I wouldn't know that they were especially proud of it, except that sometimes they tell other people and then the news gets back to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so typical of them. Yeah. Yeah. So typical Vietnamese. Um, are you ever going to do more work in Vietnam or live in Vietnam, be part of that fabric uh, of the motherland? Um, I definitely want to go back again to, uh, you know, keep keep it keep track of the Viet the the Mekong Delta and the climate change issue. Um, I want to take my son back again. The last time we went was his first time, and we were only in the south, so he's he wants to see the north next time. Um, and I I would like him to learn Vietnamese. Uh, it was easier when we were there. Yeah, but that's a hard yeah that's a hard task to to teach these kids. I hope I hope to make a difference in making it easier for people to teach their kids. Like there, there's been like a there's a there's a um, like an alphabet book that I've been slowly working on, you know, uh, and there are more like Vietnamese language like kids books, like picture books. And I feel like there's so many of us, at, even just here in the U.S., right? Um, that Actually, there are more Vietnamese speakers in the U.S. than there are French speakers, but you wouldn't know that from the infrastructure that exists. There are French schools where you can, like, you know, do your education in immersed in French, but there are there, that doesn't exist in Vietnamese. So we kind of have to create more infrastructure to make it easier. Yeah, I um, my two kids. I mean, my mother lives with me. Um, I speak Vietnamese uh, decently, and I speak to my mother entirely in Vietnamese. It's so difficult to speak to my children in Vietnamese. My wife's Taiwanese, but it's so difficult to to get them to. And it's not them; it's just me being lazy and and 
You kind of have to yeah. force yourself to do it. Yeah, well, yeah. Do you feel like a dad in Vietnamese? Is that part of it? Like, are you still a kid in Vietnamese? Oh, what a great question. I don't feel any identity as it relates to being Vietnamese with my family, with my children or my wife. I don't feel like a Vietnamese man. I don't feel like a Vietnamese father. I feel very American, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes sense that the yeah. language that comes out naturally isn't Vietnamese. Yeah, because I feel like the honorifics of con vi ba might oh this is i've never thought about this Talk loaded about right it makes you loaded yeah. some feelings up yeah it puts barriers up because of the way that it did it for our generation um i and i don't want them to think that i'm above them i just want them to think that i just happened to be the person that was you know uh gave birth you know my wife gave birth to them and we just was part of that process and we're just here to inch them along in their journey and not as a top-down um hierarchical patriarchal you know so it our language is loaded with that stuff and yeah and then there's, there's some tenderness in the words and, and stuff too right I love the musicality of the language yeah. and, and I, I, I find it really comforting in a lot of ways. I think that it can be difficult to like grow up in the diaspora because your, your idea of the culture is like filtered through like your own narrower experience, right? We only had our own families. At best, we had our extended families. And maybe if we were lucky, we grew up in a Vietnamese community. So we had like more examples of what it meant to be Vietnamese. But like, if you grow up in the country, you got like 95 million people, you know, <laughs> you, you have more examples. So maybe you would have found like the the dad who was the kind of dad that you want to be, who spoke in that language. That, that's kind of part of why I want to go back to Vietnam a lot is to expand my idea of what it means to be Vietnamese. Yeah. I mean, I, I have such a narrow, I mean, now that you're bringing that up, I have such a narrow way. I have to open it up a little bit. Narrow way of how I want my kids to perceive me. Uh, I want them to see that I'm very, very open and that I can be transparent. And I think putting these uh, titles, uh, like the way we have it might be a little bit, you know, I think, I think just being American and the English Americans a little bit more open and free and yeah, yeah. Less hierarchical. Uh -huh. But I think the tenderness of gone viva and gone viva is, uh, but then I almost feel like I'm, I'm not being honest and real when i try to bust out this gone viva because it's like it's so it's made a up costume yeah, yeah it's a co uh -huh. exactly what it is it's a yeah. costume yeah you can so you're gonna be like my thou when they get a little older <laughs> <laughs> but that's a costume too right mm -hmm. that would be all of I'll it i'll be a fun one <laughs> yeah because <laughs> my 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 mom and i have something authentic mm -hmm. comes from the motherland it comes from a rich history mm -hmm. and uh i i i love that i love the, the the tenderness of that relationship but it yeah you're right it doesn't it I, it's it just feels off because mm -hmm. i don't think of myself as a vietnamese um player in that family or family player in in vietnamese yeah something really therapeutic about comics is uh like as opposed to writing autobiography in prose is that you have to externalize your feelings and, and you have to draw your body a lot and actually that was really helpful um because when you can if you write just in prose autobio can be like this disembodied voice and you show a lot of your interiority but when you're drawing autobiographical comics you have to draw yourself into different situations so it gives you this perspective on yourself um and I, I think that helped me with this idea of like speaking Vietnamese or not being a kind of a costume change because it was it actually felt like a costume change having to draw myself. What, Does that make sense? Yeah, one hundred percent makes sense. And these are thoughts that you know. I, that's why I'm so grateful to be doing these podcasts because these are thoughts that. I'm not exposed to, and regular people were just never exposed to the way like a specific art form is 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 being carried out and being executed so thank you so much for for sharing that um yeah yeah i had a wonderful time uh a little nervous because uh you know when when you read a book that has 
all of your friends and so many people in your Facebook feed, you know, have spoken about <laughs> it. I remember the the wave of of of, of excitement and um, the accolades that I would read online, and finally being able to sit here. It, it, sometimes a little jarring. I'm not gonna lie. It's a it, it, you know, I've known Viet Thanh Nguyen for 20-something years because I went to USC and when he was coming in, oh, was, okay. we overlapped. And and throughout the years, you know, Ham Tran, which is the, the filmmaker, mm-hmm. uh, stayed, um, he was one of his housemates. And uh, so I would come over. So even at that level for me was, you know, even though I've known him, it's still jarring. But when I don't know somebody and, you know, you read uh, on, on, on the book and how it's received and how well it's received in our community... It's, it's it'd be a little intimidating and after speaking with people um you know people are all the same and they're just wonderful human beings Vietnamese people yeah yeah I mean I made sure to dress down you know I didn't wear my leather jacket for you I was like okay this is my Asian American advocacy fund hat I'm um I'm just trying to be comfortable <laughs> it's it's also intimidating, um, you know, getting in front of a camera and uh, this idea that you have to like represent yourself to people mm-hmm. who have ideas about you too. It's a bit weird. It's different. It's different um, yeah. having a public public figure persona or, or keeping one up is exhausting, honestly. Yeah, it really is. And in real life, I'm a lot more uh, cowboy. I'm a lot more foul mouth um you know i'm just looser and I'm <laughs> let's to get together and yo <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah so you know we have to kind of kind of button it up in these kind of interviews but hopefully as the years go go on and we can get back on and reconvene and and you know talk about uh, other projects uh, for the next 20 years then it becomes looser and becomes more you know you come down to the studio in la uh, sometime and you know, sit around on couches and actually talk and, 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 you know, just be more lively. Yes. Yes. We'll hit up Vit with his uh, TV show that yes. he's developing, right? <laughs> yes. Hook us up, Vit. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you so much, T. I, I really enjoyed today. Me too. This was great. Thanks, <laughs> Kenneth. And thank you for, you know, <laughs> making the Vietnamese podcast. It's such a cool thing to have when talking about resources that make it easier to like continue being us and figuring out who we are. Totally. This is one of those places. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.